Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 82, The Constitution of the Realm. What do you do once you've condemned your eldest son and heir to life imprisonment? Exactly, you have a party, or more precisely you have two parties. But as always with Frederick II, these are not just knees-ups for entertainment, but elaborately staged political events. The first is a wedding, the second a grand get-together of the whole realm, and then there's a third, a funeral of a kind you would not have expected from our rational, seemingly agnostic hero. Lots to unpack, as always. Now, before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too, and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash history of the Germans, or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Oliver, Rachel and Wayland who've already signed up. Last week we left Frederick sitting in judgement over his wayward son. This family rift was not based on a fundamental personality clash, as had been the case with his namesake, Frederick II of Prussia, nor was it the case of unbridled ambition, as it had been when Richard the Lionheart and his brothers rose up against their father, Henry II. The rift had been almost entirely political. Henry, the king in brackets, believed that all the resources of the family, which meant basically the resources of Sicily, should be employed in rolling back the encroachment of royal power. He wanted to force the princes to disgorge the rights and privileges they had extracted from Philip of Swabia and Otto IV during the recent civil wars. Frederick's priority was the exact opposite, forcing the Pope into a recognition of the Emperor as his equal and as temporal ruler of all of Christendom was his great objective, and this objective could only be achieved by surrounding the papal lands on all sides. He already had the south, where his kingdom of Sicily began just 100 miles from Rome, he also had a hold on Tuscany, northwest of Rome, and that left Lombardy, the northeastern flank of the Papal States. Lombardy had only recently revived the Lombard League, that mighty association of northern Italian cities that had broken the armies of the great Barbarossa. To bring Lombardy into submission required a huge military force and almost unlimited funds. The Lombards were rich, extremely warlike and their cities well fortified. The latter is the expensive bit. Before the advent of cannons, city walls could really not be broken. To force entry required expensive siege engines and the stamina to starve out the population, sometimes for years. You remember the sieges of tiny but fierce Crema and Alessandria, the city of straw. Frederick II needed to prepare for that and for more and that meant he needed Sicily for the money, and he needed the fierce warriors of Germany, a land rich in soldiers, as Italian chroniclers had called it since the 10th century. By 1235, these German fighters were controlled by the princes, whether he liked it or not. A reconciliation with the great imperial princes had to be made. And that is where the aforementioned wedding comes in. Frederick's second wife, Isabel of Brienne, the Queen of Jerusalem, had died aged 16 when giving birth to her son Conrad. This, just for reference, was not her first pregnancy. Since Isabella's death in 1228, Frederick had negotiated various marriage alliance options, but nothing had come of it. 
Now, in 1235, he was prepared to wed again. The bride he chose was another Isabella, Isabella Plantagenet. She was 21 years old and the sister of Henry III of England. This marriage was a major shift in Hohenstaufen politics. Until now, the Hohenstaufen had tended to support the King of France in the perennial Anglo-French conflict. Meanwhile, the House of Welf, their rivals, had been closely related to the Angevin rulers of England. Otto IV had grown up at the English court and one of his major supporters were the merchants and citizens of Cologne who had close trading relationships with the Settered Isle. The reason for this shift in alliances, and hence the marriage, was again all about northern Italy. Henry III had promised a dowry worth as much as 30,000 marks of silver as a contribution to the war chest. A sum significant enough, the rich king of England had to raise a special tax for it. But it's not all about money. The Kingdom of France had by now stretched down south, courtesy of the Albigensian Crusade. That brought them uncomfortably close to the wealth of Italy. So it was quite handy that Henry III was preparing another campaign against the French to regain the lands of Anjou and Normandy, an effort that would keep the French busy. The final and probably biggest benefit was that the marriage paved the way to a reconciliation between the houses of Welf and Hohenstaufen. As we've heard, the conflict between these two houses was not the dominant strain of domestic politics during the entire High Middle Ages, as had been believed by many historians of the 19th century. But it was still a significant component, and that particularly during the last 35 years. Though the wealth were much diminished in power, they still had some following. Amongst it, the city of Cologne, by now the richest, largest and most important city in Germany. To bring them into the fold, Frederick II had to address the wealth's most painful grievance. You see, the mighty wealth, descendants of kings, whose family line goes back not just to Charlemagne but to Odoasa and Attila the Hun, who lived in a palace in Braunschweig that rivals any imperial residence, and who had been the most preeminent magnates in the empire, and whose last head of house had been crowned emperor, these proud nobles had lost their status as imperial princes when Henry the Lion was stripped of his dukedoms of Bavaria and Saxony. The current head of the House of Welf was a simple noble, no duke, no landgraf, not even a meagre margraf, nothing. Just a free man with a lot, a lot of land. In the status-ridden society of the 13th century, that was a constant humiliating reminder of their fall. Frederick II was prepared to resolve that. A month after the sumptuous wedding to Isabella in Worms, he created a new duchy, the Duchy of Brunswick. The way this happened is somehow revealing about the way vassalage worked in Germany. The current head of the house was Otto von Lüneburg, called the child, though he was by now 31 years old. Otto had inherited the family possessions around Brunswick and Lüneburg from his uncle, the Count Palatinate. It is these lands that were now to be made into a separate duchy. A duchy is by definition a fief of the emperor. So in order to grant Otto these lands as a duchy, Otto first had to hand those lands over to the emperor. Legally, it was a present, without recourse. Frederick then declared that, quote, Otto von Luneburg had done us homage, and unmindful of all the hate and harassment that existed between our forefathers, hath placed himself under our protection and at our service, unquote. As a faithful imperial vassal, Otto could expect to receive a fief 
that allowed him to fulfill his military obligations towards the empire. And so he received his lands back, plus Goslar and surroundings, not as his property, but as a fief, so technically a loan from the emperor. Since it was an imperial fief, it could be elevated to a duchy, the duchy of Brunswick. So just to recap, Otto hands his privately owned lands to the emperor, who makes them now royal lands, that can be enfiefed to that same man who previously owned them outright. Sounds like an awful deal for Otto, but it was not. Yes, in principle, the emperor is now owner and could therefore enfief someone else with his lands. Yes, in principle, the emperor is now the owner and could enfief someone else with his lands. But that right had almost completely diminished. Already under Henry VI, the princes had received the right to pass their fiefs by inheritance to distant family members and even to their son-in-laws. The recall of a fief was almost defunct, though we will see that Frederick and later emperors will still try. Furthermore, Otto was now obliged to offer Frederick military support as an imperial vassal, but in return he was also entitled to imperial protection and support. The most important benefit, however, was the elevation to rank of imperial prince. That allows him to participate in imperial decision-making, in elections, and opens up all sorts of opportunities for consolidation and expansion of power, something that ends up for the house of wealth in a royal title. So, what about young Isabella, the one who made all this reconciliation possible? She was by all accounts an exceptionally beautiful woman, so beautiful indeed that people along her route into Germany constantly demanded to see her famous face. She received the most splendid welcome in Cologne, the city that was most keen on close relationships with England. Matthew Paris, the English chronicler, wrote that tens of thousands flocked to welcome her with flowers and palm branches and music. Riders on Spanish horses had performed with their lances the nuptial breaking of the staves, whilst ships, which appeared to sail on dry land but were drawn by horses, concealed under silken coverings, and the clerks of Cologne played new airs on their instruments. The matrons seated on their balconies sang the praises of the Empress Beauty when Isabella, at their request, laid aside hat and veil and showed her face. Six weeks later, the wedding was celebrated with all possible pomp and in the presence of a sea of bishops and a banner of knights. Frederick did not, however, stay with his bride on the wedding night. His astrologer had suggested the morning as more auspicious. Business over, he declared that Isabella was now with child and was sent to live behind closed doors in the royal palace of Palermo, catered for by eunuchs, and having an estimated five further children. She was barely again seen in public, and even her brother had to insist to be allowed to meet her. The wedding took place in July 1235. A mere month later, an even bigger gathering took place in Mainz. Frederick had called all the imperial princes to join him in one great assembly to confirm and swear upon a new constitution of the empire. And they all came. The archbishops of Mainz, Cologne, Trier, Salzburg, Besançon and Magdeburg, that's pretty much all of them except for hamburg Bremen. And then amongst the bishops came those of Regensburg, Bamberg, Konstanz, Augsburg, Strasbourg, Speyer, Basel, Hildesheim, Osnabrück, Lüttich, Utrecht, Combray, Metz, Verdun, Naumburg, Merseburg, Passau, Eichstätt and Freising. Then we have the great abbots of Murbach, Reichenau and Elwangen, the dukes of Bavaria, Brabant, Saxony, Lothringia, Carinthia, the Landgraf of Thuringia, 
the Markgrafs of Baden, Meissen and Brandenburg, and many, many more even I cannot be bothered to mention. Everybody was there. It was almost a rerun of the great Pentecost assembly Barbarossa had held 50 years earlier. But this time it was less about chivalric play and display, but about negotiations over the future shape of the empire and the upcoming campaign in Lombardy. The aforementioned reconciliation with the House of Elf took actually place here. The other great outcome of the event was the Mainzer Landfrieden, another public peace, or more likely public truce, the kind of which we've heard about since the reign of Henry III. Gone are the days an emperor can simply order peace to be maintained, threatening anyone who were to pursue his demands by force of arms. Feud is now endemic in Germany. The logic is the same we talked about when we looked at the constitutions of Melfi. In the absence of a functioning judicial system of redress, society recognizes feud as a viable way to resolve conflict. In the Kingdom of Sicily, Frederick addressed the issue by establishing a complete system of appellate courts backed by central powers, a set of provisions intended to prevent and de-escalate conflict, and a ban on privately held castles. The idea to introduce the same in the empire was simply inconceivable. In the two great privileges, the one in favour of the bishops from 1220 and the more recent one, and largely identical one, in favour of the temporal princes, jurisdiction in princely territories had moved permanently from the imperial hands into the hands of the princes. The process of passing laws in the empire also involved the princes. Formally, their rule was purely advisory, but in practice, any imperial ukas issued without the bishops, dukes and margraf's consent was not worth the parchment it was written on. And surely, the princes would never consent to take down their castles. They would love to pass a law that ordered all their own vassals to take down their castles, but that is not something an emperor would be prepared to sign. So, the castles stay, all 20,000 of them. Even passing laws preventing the carrying of weapons or the provision that nobody can get out by saying that while the other guy started it, was seemingly not possible to get through. But there were still 29 articles all sides could agree on. Some of those repeated the privileges granted in the documents from 1220 and 1232, and then there were some new things. One of them was that any feud had to be formally declared, and that there would be a three-day cooling-off period before hostilities could begin. Further, that certain acts of violence were prohibited upon sanction of instant imperial ban, that included setting things alight, in particular houses and castles. And finally, it was ordered that before a feud could be formally declared, the parties have to go before a judge. Historians, as I increasingly learn, are not lawyers. And so they're keeping stumm on what exactly this judge could decide and how a judgment could be enforced. I tried to read the original text, but that made me no wiser. What is clear is that the parties have to get a judge's decision but that still either party is able to initiate a feud if they do not like the outcome. So it seems the judge acts more as an arbitrator, attempting to diffuse the tension and arrive at a mutually acceptable solution. That is not a judgment as we would regard it today, but it was better than nothing. In fact, the establishment of a permanent imperial judge, even if he was just an arbitrator, became the seed of what would later become the imperial courts that operated from 1495 to 1806, helping to maintain peace and order in the empire. So that does not sound very impressive for such an enormous gathering, creation of a new duchy, 
in a common peace with marginal improvements to the plague or feuds. But the most important purpose of this gathering was not to produce some formal agreement. Its significance lies more in the fact that it was the first opportunity for the princes and the emperor to operate the new constitution of the empire as it had been created by the privileges to the bishops in 1220 and the privilege to the princes in 1232. We have discussed both before, but just as a recap. In these imperial charters, they are largely identical, Frederick had passed most of the imperial rights to the bishops and then to the other imperial princes. These included things like jurisdiction, the minting of coins, the building of castles, the establishment of tariff borders and posts, etc. etc. Any imperial prince would now have the right to exercise what essentially was royal power within his territory. The charters of 1220 and 1232 did in the eyes of many historians not really grant rights to these princes they did not have before. In all these endless wranglings with the royal authority, at least since Henry IV's forced trip to Canossa, the princes have continuously squeezed more and more concessions from the emperors. The civil wars after the death of Henry VI may have accelerated the process, but the direction had been set long before. But, importantly, until 1220 and 1232 all the transfer of rights had been bilateral, i.e. every single right had been granted to an individual prince in an individual negotiation. Each prince would hence see his rights and privileges as a result of his own cunning or the dexterity of his ancestors. The privileges of 1220 and 1232 were granted not to each individual prince, but to the bishops and to the temporal princes as a group. It formally created a distinction between imperial princes and mediated vassals. All imperial princes, irrespective of whether they were bishops, abbots, dukes, landgrafs, markgrafs or counts, all shared the same rank. They now exercised these rights not on the basis of some bilateral agreement done long, long ago, but because there were imperial princes. You are an imperial prince, you can, for instance, mint coins. If you are not, you cannot, well, unless the emperor or an imperial prince grants you the right to do so. So, for instance, the just-created Duke of Brunswick had exactly the same rights in his territory as the Duke of Bavaria, whose family had patiently gathered them for over 200 years. Now, the definition of an imperial prince was that an individual had received a princely fief immediately from the emperor. That distinguished them from the mediated nobles, i.e. aristocrats, who had received their fief either from a territory lord, or even sometimes had no fief at all, just their own allodial, i.e. private lands. This clarification of the rank of imperial prince had an immediate positive effect on the coherence of the empire. The princes felt reassured that their rights would not be taken away by a more assertive emperor, because they are based on rank, the rights can only be removed by removing them from everyone of princely rank. Hence, if there would ever be any imperial attempt to roll back time, the princes would stand together. It also meant that the princes were now integrated into the imperial project. The concept of the honour of the empire, that each prince was called upon to uphold, dates back to Barbarossa, but gains even more traction. The princes are becoming the pillars of the empire, have an obligation to support the emperor and they provide the Reichsdienst, the service to the empire. I have often wondered why in periods of almost complete disappearance of royal authority, say in the late 13th century, none of these larger territories, say Bavaria, Austria, Saxony or Bohemia, decided to throw off the yoke of imperial oversight. 
I doubt it was purely for reasons of language or cultural affinity. That, for example, did not stop the Swiss. The princes, even the biggest ones, must have seen some compelling benefits in this coordination mechanism where they were integrated in the decision-making process at the top level, whilst remaining free to act as they wished within their territory. 19th-century historians often criticize Frederick's charters of 1220 and 1232 as the nail in the coffin of any hope of early statehood for Germany. I would agree that these decisions cemented development already underway that may, but really only just may, have been reversed. And I'm convinced the territorialization of Germany resulted in a significant slowing down of economic development as tariff barriers went up all over the place. But we should not overlook the fact that the empire held together for another 571 years using broadly this framework. Peter Wilson and Olaf Birada and others draw a parallel to the Magna Carta, which had granted around the same time. Like in Frederick's privileges, King of England is passing some fundamental royal rights to his nobles. The difference is, though, that in England the right goes to Parliament, an institution, an institution that by definition can have a changing membership. And that has allowed for a gradual development, where through a change in the composition of the membership of Parliament and the transfer of more rights to this institution, you ultimately arrive at democracy. In Germany, the royal rights transfer not to an institution, but to individuals based on rank. These individuals change over time, in the case of bishops, through the regular election of new holders of the post, and in the case of temporal princes, through inheritance, elevation and division. But that is not the same as passing them on to an institution. At least not yet. By 1495, the participation of princes and other holders of imperial immediacy became institutionalized in the Reichstag of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, the Reichstag, despite over 300 years of existence, did not become the nucleus of a democratic Germany. I have my views about why and how that happened, but if I have learned one thing over the last 82 episodes, it is to keep my mouth shut until I have properly researched a topic. Now, as we're talking about mouth shut, these last episodes were all a bit too long for what I thought they should be. I really do not want to put another 35-minute episode out. Hence, I'll skip the bit about the reburial of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, or as the Germans call her, St. Elizabeth of Thuringia. It would have shone a light on one of the very, very few saints I do have some regard for, but ultimately she did not have a major impact on history, as gentle, caring people rarely do. I will produce a Patreon episode about her, so if you still want to hear more about Elizabeth and the much less caring and much less gentle Konrad von Marburg, just go over to Patreon, support the show, and take a listen. Now next week we'll take a look at some of the most fascinating aspects of Frederick II, the ones outside his political life. We'll talk architecture, poetry, science, and his true passion, the Arte de Vinandi con Avibus, the art of hunting with birds. I hope it'll be a nice breather before the sound of clashing horses and the ring of swords on armor dominate the rest of this season of the History of the Germans podcast. I hope you will join us again. <laughs>